Hey there, Social Work 6382 students. I don't know what you're doing right now, but whatever it is, I hope that you're having a pretty good time. Uh, thanks for taking the time to download and listen to this podcast lecture for the class. Now, those of you who were in class last week, you'll remember that I did say that I was going to start doing some quizzes for these podcast lectures to make sure that people are actually listening to them. There's going to be a couple of times throughout this podcast lecture where I'm going to say things, and if you've listened to it, I am very, very, very sure that you will have zero problem getting every question right on the quiz that I'm going to be giving you when you come together as a class. If you're not listening to this podcast lecture, you're not hearing this voice and you just won't know about that. So having said all that stuff, what I'm going to do now is uh, cue up a little bit of introduction music from the very early 90s because it's been stuck in my head recently. I don't know why it's been stuck in my head, but it has been. And so now you're going to hear it. Maybe it'll get stuck in your head too. Maybe it won't. I don't know. But here it is. Temple of the Dog, Hunger Strike. When we come back, we're going to start talking about the stuff that I think should have been in Chapter 5 but wasn't. I don't mind stealing bread from the mouths of decadence But I can't feed on the foul else when my cup's already really good album from the early 90s. At least I think it was a really good album from the early 90s. I don't know what you think about it. If you want to tell me your opinions in class or something like that, I'd love to, to hear what you think. But uh, we're not here to talk about Temple of the Dog or the early 90s. We are here to talk about assessing communities, which is the topic of chapter five of your textbook. Uh, to start off with here, what I want to do is offer a very kind of broad criticism of this chapter. And before I do that, I want to talk about what I think it did pretty good. So the chapter is a chapter on trying to assess communities. And when they say assess, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the right word. Uh, it, it works. It's okay. It's not a bad word. I don't think it's wrong. But what I think this chapter is getting at actually is more of analyzing what's going on in communities. Now, we can call that assessment. And like I said, that's probably Okay. But I believe that the more accurate term of what's happening here would be analyzing. And this chapter gives you a pretty solid, good, very broad, super expansive kind of outline of a ton of different ways that you might want to go about analyzing what's going on in a community or assessing you know, what is going on in a community gives you all sorts of different ways that you might do that. That it did pretty good. Now let's start the criticism part. Uh, like anything which is really broad and super expansive, 
uh, you you get a lot of breadth, but you have to sacrifice depth to do that. And that's definitely what happens in this chapter. A lot of the ideas that get talked about here get brought up and get described in a very surface-level way, which is good as a starting point. That's not bad, right? A lot of times I think it can be really useful to read something that throws a lot of information at you about a lot of different styles or methods that might exist for trying to analyze what's going on in communities. This chapter does that. But it's not going to be that useful for you if you attempt to try, I think, a lot of the things that they put in this chapter. And I don't think it's going to be useful for you to try it because they don't give you a lot of much of a, like how to actually do this. They give you a good description of some of the major sorts of steps that people take when they do this, but they don't really talk to you a whole lot about the how or the why components, you know, how it is that you might actually go about doing this or why you might choose to use any of these particular methodologies over any of the other methodologies that you could choose. And that's my first criticism. Now, my second criticism is something that you are probably going to potentially see coming if you've been paying attention in class. Out of all of the methods that they talk about in this chapter, none of those methods are really all that good at trying to interpret what it is that is going on or might be going on within the unconscious of a community. Now, if you remember, way back in the very first class, that was something that I thought was really, really important. I thought that was a vital skill that more, I would really like it if more social workers were to become interested in it and, and try to do it. Just let's do a quick review here. Uh, communities and individual people have a conscious. Uh, their consciousness is the thing which is filled with all of the things that they want to do, all the things that they believe, and they can talk about these things that they, they believe because they're in their consciousness. But following sort of psychoanalytic thought, individual people, families, communities, societies, all also have an unconscious. And the unconscious is this sort of, um, I'm using air quotes with my fingers here, but you can't see it because this is a podcast, but just know that I am. Uh, there's a air quotes place where all of the things that an individual or a family or a community or a company or a society, where, where all of the things that that entity, whatever it is, wants, but it can't acknowledge that it wants them. Why can't it acknowledge that it wants them? If they, if the person or the community were to acknowledge that it wants whatever, that would mean that the individual of the community has to radically alter their identity, has to radically alter the story they tell themselves and others about themselves. That is those sorts of things, those sorts of desires, the things that we want, but we can't admit that we want them because admitting that we want them would require a massive reorganization of identity, those things get repressed into the unconscious. Interesting thing that you got to keep in mind here, whenever something is repressed, it's not destroyed. It's not dead. It's still very much alive. It's still very much there. It's just now existing in this place where you or the community no longer has direct access to it. And it tends to those, those repressed desires, what they do 
is they sort of lurk and occasionally they find ways to express themselves and those when that happens it usually ends up taking the individual or the community by surprise and it oftentimes also creates a good amount of dysfunction problems those sorts of things i'm going to give you an example of this and i'm going to use the community of social work as my thing that i use to try to illustrate this sort of repressed desire thing so on the surface we take a look at, at social work we talk to social workers we read things that are written about social work by the nasw the cswe and so on and so forth those those big organizations that represent social workers if we were to do that one of the things that i think we would see is an identity for social work as, as a community and that identity is that it's very open very accepting very interested in not discriminating against anybody because of whatever reason that that's not what social workers do that social workers rather than discriminate they they welcome that is very much a conscious stated thing and in many instances it's also an accurate description of what social workers do and kind of why they do it be that as it may i'm going to suggest and this is my opinion here this is not a fact that there is a repressed desire within social work and that repressed desire is a desire to be better than other people or other professions that make up the uh, mental health world or, or the helping professions more broadly. I say that because I can recall many, many instances where I have talked with social workers about the difference between, say, like social work and counseling, social work and psychology. And whenever I have those conversations, it seems to me very maybe not every single time, but a lot of times when I have those conversations, social workers will talk about how they're better than, they might not use that word, they're better than some of these other professions because of the emphasis that social work places on concepts like social justice, economic justice, and environmental justice. They say social workers care about those things. They care about social justice. Counselors, psychologists, uh, yeah, maybe they care about it, but they don't care about it the way that we care about it, right? Not, not the way that social workers do. Social workers are, you know, according to this logic anyways, more interested in working with people who are very disadvantaged, the poor, uh, the, the people who are considered vulnerable populations of some sort. And this desire to be better will not be something that I think social workers will usually sort of like consciously acknowledge. I'm suggesting that it just kind of lurks around and it comes out whenever social workers kind of like have a chance to like stick it to some other profession or professional who's outside social work and kind of describe that profession or that professional as greedy or avaricious or unconcerned with things like the plight of the poor, right? And you, you see it kind of come out in that way. That's just a quick example that, that occurred to me right off the top of my head as I sat down to do this lecture. And every community has these sorts of things. Um, you know, I have a, a different example of this. Let me tell you. Uh, there's a, a friend of mine who I knew when I was younger and we, our lives kind of took divergent paths. Uh, the path that his life took is he went on to become a Catholic priest and I, I went on to do all the stuff that I'm doing now. We're still in contact from time to time. We talk to each other a little bit, not super often, but every now and then. And, you know, one of the things that he has talked to me about is now that he is at a church, um, you know, he'll, he's super involved. He's a, a, a priest at a Catholic church. And he talks about how 
members of his community, the community that makes up the parishioners of this church, will talk about wanting to do things like help the poor. Um, but then what happens is he he recognizes that there's this maybe unconscious desire to just kind of get out of feeling guilty uh, is what, what he says to me. And he says that because there's a lot of people who he'll see kind of like talk a big game, you know, about helping the poor. They, they will bring that up regularly in a variety of different ways. And they'll maybe give money from time to time to, to help the poor. Like they'll donate money to something. But when it comes time to like actually show up and like do work, directly with the poor, those people who talk about how important it is, they're nowhere to be found sometimes. Okay, there's an unconscious desire here, and it's an unconscious desire perhaps to just like not feel bad about being well off. Because sometimes when people, you know, they have enough money and resources and stuff, and they're around, they can see other people who don't, they, they might feel guilty about that. And what they want to do is they just want to not feel guilty. And one of the ways that, that somebody could attempt to get out of feeling guilty is just to sort of like throw money at something like a church or a charity or, or some other group like that. And then they can say like, oh, cool, I've, I've done my part. I'm good. I don't need to feel guilty anymore. But if you were to ask them, you know, do you, do you feel guilty? They'd probably be like, no, no, I don't, I don't feel guilty. If you were to ask them, uh, are you trying to get out of some feelings of guilt maybe by just kind of giving money but not actually kind of like showing up and giving things like time or whatever? They'd be like, no, 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 that's not, that's not it at all. And that's the way that the unconscious works. Whenever there is the, these desires that have been repressed in the unconscious, we don't know that they're there. And even sometimes when somebody tells us that they're there, when somebody describes them to us, we deny them. We're like, no, that's wrong. Uh, when you describe them to a community, the members of the community will be like, no, 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 you, that, you're, you're not understanding. And they'll, they'll tell you that you're wrong. Sometimes you're actually wrong. Of course, that happens, right? Every interpretation can be right or can be wrong. But if you make an interpretation of what's going on in the conscious of a community, even if you encounter resistance from the members of the community, if they tell you that your interpretation is in some way off, that doesn't mean that it is actually off. It might mean that it's not. The only way to find that out to find out if your interpretation is correct or incorrect, is to engage in some form of an analysis of that community. The more in-depth your analysis or assessment, I guess, uh, the more you will be able to tell if your interpretation was on the money or off. When you read the paper, the turn theory of the subject of the school, which you should have read last week, maybe you're reading it again this week, when you read that, you can see another example of an interpretation. In that paper, the author, whose name is Jacqueline Miller, he's French, in case you couldn't tell from the way I said his name, he's a psychoanalyst. He's a very influential member of the psychoanalytic community. And what he does is he interprets the psychoanalytic community in this paper. Uh, now, there's a lot of different ways you, you could read this paper, and I'm summarizing a lot of stuff when I say this, so please bear that in mind. Uh, Malaire was noticing that there was a tendency within the psychoanalytic community for groups of analysts to come together and form schools or form institutes or form groups of some sort, to form kind of sub-communities within the community of psychoanalysts. And when they did that, part of what they were doing is they were making a claim to be the group of analysts that is like the one group that really gets how to do psychoanalysis. 
And within that, there's an, kind of like an implicit claim that other groups, they're doing it wrong. And Malheur is calling attention to this and he's trying to say like, you know, my interpretation is that there's this propensity among psychoanalysts to want to form groups and to want to form groups that have prestige, to have form groups that have some kind of monopoly upon psychoanalytic technique or on the truth that is psychoanalysis or something like that. And he's saying that if that is what's happening, that's very non-psychoanalytic. You know, it, he's saying by trying to be the best type, the most appropriate type, the most uh, true-to-form type of psychoanalyst, what psychoanalysts end up doing is becoming non-psychoanalytic. And, you know, this is something that's it's really important to me being somebody who's, as I said, a, a member of the psychoanalytic community. It's probably not as important to you who are, are reading this. Um, but the reason I'm having you read it is that it's, it, there's a couple reasons, but one of the reasons is that it is such a good job of somebody who's a member of a community interpreting the community that he is a part of. And by interpreting it, he's saying this community is making a mistake and it's making a mistake because it has this unconscious desire that it is unaware of and that unconscious desire that it is unaware of is influencing the community in ways that are perhaps bad and definitely if they're not bad they're certainly not so good <laughs> they're they're not having a good effect basically and that's what he's doing and this is just a i mean it's an essential skill I tried to do it a second ago. I tried to interpret social work. Um, the, my, my priest friend tries to interpret, interpret the Catholic Church. Uh, Jacqueline Miller tries to interpret the community that is the community of psychoanalysts. In all three of these cases, there is always pushback from different people. There's going to be individuals who don't appreciate the interpretation very much. And that's okay. That's part of what comes along with making a good interpretation is that when you make it, people are not necessarily going to you know pat you on the back and tell you good job thanks for telling us this thing about our community that we have repressed thanks for making us aware of it that's not usually how things go and even though it's hard to do it even though making interpretations oftentimes leads to the person who made the interpretation being disliked by members of a community, I still think it is a vital task, a task that, that social workers and hopefully other people can become good at. So having said that, what I want to do next is uh, I want to talk about how you're going to make an attempt at an interpretation through an assignment that you're going to start doing this week, uh, an assignment called the photo voice assignment. We're going to talk about that as soon as we get back. So the photo voice assignment is going to be something that I'm trying out here. I've never actually used this assignment before. You are the first group I'm using this assignment with. So we're going to see how it goes. Here's the gist of it. One of the things that I want you all to become better at as a result of being in this class is your own ability to 
understand what it is that is going on within the unconscious of communities and to be able to then interpret whatever is going on within the unconscious of communities. Now, it's my belief that one of the ways that we can try to get a clearer picture of a better grasp on what's going on in the unconscious of communities is through just kind of very unobtrusively looking around at what we see in those communities. Let me give you an example of this. If I were to um, you know, walk into, I'll say, a bar, and I looked around, and in that bar, I saw a lot of different things that were associated with a particular sports team. It would be a reasonable, I think, assumption then to assume that this is a, a, a bar where people come together if they follow that team, that this is one of the places where they, they get together to support that team, watch games, do those sorts of things, right? And I can figure that out without talking to anybody. I can figure that out without doing any kind of detailed statistical analysis of what's going on here. I can just kind of like look around and see things. Now let's take this a step farther. Let's also say as I look around this bar, I see other things that maybe are disparaging of another team and the fans of that team. You know, if you go into uh, like, I guess, a, a Packers bar, there might be something saying like, if you're a Vikings fan or a Bears fan, get out. Likewise, if you go into a Bears bar, maybe it's the same thing for the Packers. Uh, but you'll, you'll see those things too. Those things might indicate a rivalry, right? That is an important rivalry for that community. I could go on, but I'm going to assume that you get the point. Just by taking a look around, taking some stuff in, you can figure out things about a community. You can figure out what it is that they like, what they don't like, what they, they tend to value. That can be analyzed just through looking around. Now let's take this away from the realm of sports teams and let's kind of blow it out into a bigger thing here. Uh, just the other day, I was driving, uh, I have so I, I went camping in Wisconsin and I was coming back from that. And so I'm driving through this section of Wisconsin. As I drive through the section of Wisconsin, I can see signs, you know, that people have in their yard. Sometimes they're election signs, sometimes there are other sorts of signs. But one of the things that really struck me was there was this one house that, that had, um, a bunch of signs out in front of it for a particular political candidate. And it also had like kind of handwritten or, or um, painted signs that the, I assume that somebody had made. And they said things like, you know, America, love it or leave it. Um, they said things like uh, protect our country from drug dealers and rapists, etc. Uh so as I, I saw these things, I, I could make certain assumptions about, you know, the, the, the person who put them there, the, the house that they, they were in front of. I could, I could see things just from looking at this. What I could see is that the political candidate who is being supported tends to have a style which is to paint anybody who is not 
a supporter of his as somebody who is a bad person. Uh, I could I could see that. If I were to take a picture of this yard and show you these signs, I think you would be able to make a similar inference and probably a whole bunch of other inferences as well, just from looking at this. But again, let's take this a step farther. Uh, that was just a house. We can see this in a bunch of other areas too. So like if we were to go and just sort of like look around in uh, a place where we happen to live right now, we would see advertisements for things we would see um, signs and shop windows. We would see all sorts of different things. And if we were to take a picture of those things, one of the things that we could do is we could interpret what is going on with this place. You know, what is it that the, this this community seems to value? And when you take a look at something that a community tends to value, oftentimes you can also infer maybe something that it doesn't value very much. And that's kind of what we're going to be doing with the photo voice assignment. We're going to be, I'm going to be asking you all to go out and about in the area kind of where you live, take a picture of something. And then through taking these pictures of things, attempt to interpret what this image can reveal about the unconscious of the community that you took it in. That's what we're going to be going for here. So now that you've listened to this, what I want everybody to do before we have class is uh, take a look in your syllabus. There's a description of the photo voice assignment. Take a look at that description. If you have any questions about the assignment, please bring them to class. Like I said, this is the first, you're the first group that I'm having do this assignment. So, you know, I, I think it will be very reasonable if you all have questions, we're going to kind of like work this out together. And if we are, you know, if we communicate, if you have questions and you ask, that would be a great thing. So I want everybody to be able to do that. Let's take one more break and come back and cover just one more thing. So the last bit of things that I want to cover in this podcast lecture comes from the very end of chapter five. It starts on page 90, where it talks about assessing support and facilitating change. And then, you know, very shortly after that on page 91, it talks about securing sanctions and legitimacy. One of the things that I believe can help you uh, secure legitimacy if you stick with it long term is making good interpretations, but not using those interpretations as a weapon. Instead, using them as an invitation. I want to be really clear about what I mean by this. Earlier in this podcast lecture, I said that if you make interpretations, that you might encounter resistance from the community that you're interpreting. And I believe that that is usually very true. To interpret the unconscious of a community or anything really, oftentimes makes the community or the person who's unconscious as being interpreted feel defensive. And the way that you respond to that defensiveness is absolutely essential to how effective you will be 
at helping that community or that individual change in some way that I hope would be positive. So for example here, you know, earlier on in this podcast lecture, I was interpreting the community of social work. Now, maybe that made some of you feel defensive. Maybe it didn't. I don't know. Um, but what I would like to do now is I would like to, to go further than that. I want to offer the interpretation. And if you got defensive, I'm talking mainly to you. The reason that I make these interpretations is not because I actually um, think it's just a whole lot of fun to rag on social workers. Part of the reason that I, I make them is that I would actually really like the community of social workers, of which I am a part, to become better. And part of becoming better means taking a look at one's community, taking a look at oneself, and recognizing or having somebody else recognize and interpret some of the areas where there are flaws. If people use interpretation like a weapon and they just use it to kind of like find things that are wrong in a community or in a person and then they just kind of like bludgeon that community, bludgeon that person with all of these interpretations. You suck at this, you're bad at that, you you say you love this, but really you love this other thing. If, if you do that, you're not going to be seen as a legitimate force who's trying to help. If you do that, you are going to get a level of defensiveness from the community. The key part of the work that I'm trying to describe to you and, and in a sense entice you to do is to make the interpretation and make the interpretation in a way that can be really heard and taken in by the community that you are interpreting. Say the interpretation, make something known, expect that that'll make the community a little uncomfortable, but you have to also say it well. You have to interpret well. You have to interpret in a way that the community can hear and take in. And you have to respond to the defensiveness, which I think is to some degree inevitable, generously, graciously, and you know, try to show the community that when you interpret, that you're not just doing it to be mean, that you're not just doing it because you're one of those people who really thinks it's fun to point out the flaws in others. This is a really key part of it. Uh, so that was the last point I wanted to make in this podcast lecture. Thank you for taking the time to listen to it. I do appreciate that. Uh, take a look out for that quiz, which is going to happen uh, when we have class coming up. I will see you all then. Till then, make glorious mistakes.